All right, folks, it's time to get back to work here. What do you say? Let's uh, grab your Bibles, if you will, and I uh, hope you brought one. If you didn't, there are some back there. I hope you'll use ours. But uh, you're about to hear that which is the only inspired part of uh, the sermon, and I'm going to read to you the entire chapter of Job 11. So you follow in your copies as I read that. Here we go, Job chapter 11 at verse 1. Then Zophar the Namathite answered and said, Should a multitude of words go unanswered and a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men? And when you mock, shall no one shame you? For you say, My doctrine is pure. And I am clean in God's eyes, but oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes through and imprisons and summons the court, who can turn him back? For he knows worthless men. When he sees iniquity, will he not consider it? But a stupid man will get understanding when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. If you prepare your heart, you will stretch out your hands toward him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away. And let not injustice dwell in your tents. Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish. You will be secure and will not fear. For you will forget your misery. You will remember it as waters that have passed away. And your life will be brighter than the noonday. Its darkness will be like the morning. And you will feel secure because there is hope. And you will look around and take your rest in security. You will lie down and... None will make you afraid. Many will court your favor, but the eyes of the wicked will fail. All way of escape will be lost to them, and their hope is to breathe their last. (laughs) The grass withers, and the flower fades. The word of our God, it endures forever. Guys, uh, you may remember this, maybe maybe not, but last week we were in chapter 3, and here we are this week in chapter 11. Now, what did we miss? I mean, uh, is there anything in uh, uh, chapters 4 through 10 uh, that we missed? Uh, I mean, why, why, why did you skip all that? Well, let me try to explain, and in so doing, you'll get a, you'll get a flavor or a little bit of an understanding or a panoramic view of the book itself. Guys, in chapter 2, we are introduced to Job's three friends. Remember that? Um, Their names are Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Chapter 3 is what we looked at last week, and that's when Job had his meltdown. Well, then in chapter 4 and 5, Eliphaz, one of the friends, steps forward to, um, to try to straighten Job out. And then Job replies to Eliphaz in chapter 6 and 7. Then in chapter 8, the second friend, Bildad, he steps into the ring wanting to offer his opinion. And then in in chapters 9 and 10, 
Job answers him. Now we come to chapter 11. Now it's Zophar's turn, the third friend. Zophar steps up and he wants to speak to Job and straighten him out too. And then Job replies to him in chapters 12, 13, and 14. And then you come to chapter 15 and the whole cycle starts over again. Uh, one friend steps forward and Job replies. There's three rounds of this. That is, the friend step forward, Job replies, the friends. Until you get to chapter 32, when a new guy appears on the scene whose name is Elihu. And Elihu's a young guy who's a real windbag. Uh, he's long-winded. He takes six chapters to, um, to, to speak his piece. And then finally, in chapter 38, God steps forward and uh, brings an end to all this nonsense. But this morning, we are, um, we are introduced uh, to, the, to the three friends, so-called, of Job via this fellow by the name of Zophar. Now, guys, to their credit... Um, they did sit with Job in silence for a whole week. They said nothing. But once they opened their mouths, oh, the um, the uh, the sparks began to fly. The, um, the 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 difficulties arise once once they begin to talk. Um, they. Um, They've got a lot on their mind. They've got a lot that they think needs to be said. They, they, they've got a lot of offense with Job. They had an opportunity to go down in history as the, the most sensitive, the most caring, the most uh, consoling friends ever. But they blew it. They, they started to talk, but they blew it because um, they, uh, of, of the way that they approached Job. And, and, and in all honesty, guys, their approach is pretty much all the same. They all pretty much have... The same thing to say. But as I said, Zophar is the last of the three friends. He is the last of the three friends to speak in, in round one. He's going to speak again in round two and three. But um, this, is, this is the last of the three friends to speak in round one. And apparently, Zophar has been chomping at the bit to, to speak. He can't wait to get his, uh, his two cents worth in. Zophar has a terrible bedside manner. Uh, there, he, he doesn't know what tact or or diplomacy mean. Um, he, he seems to be the type that prides himself on on um, calling him as he sees him. You know, um, because his critique in chapter eleven is not only blunt, but he's insulting as well. He calls Job a mocker. He talks about Job's babble, as if Job is um, is, a, is nothing but a windbag, and and even even worse, the the assumption or the implication seems to be that um, that the reason that Job's ten children are dead is because of you, Job, which is really cruel. I mean, guys, when you're when you're in a situation where there's been significant loss. The one thing that you do are tormented by is, is this my fault? Well, I, I guess worse than all of that, 
he, he accuses Job uh, in verses 4 and 5 of, of an arrogant self-righteousness. Mudslinging, ladies and gentlemen, mudslinging becomes the order of the day. Because Job's spiritual experience doesn't live up to their rigid expectations, Job's three friends brand him a wicked man. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is legalistic, ritualistic religion at its worst. It's... um. It's a sort of legalism, guys, that has it's just cut itself off from all the realities of the faith that it says it's trying to protect. So that said, guys, I have, I have two goals. My, my goals this morning are twofold. First of all, I, I want to I describe something that I don't want to be, and I don't want you to be it. And secondly, I, I want to explain something that I do want to do, and I want you to do it, too. So I want to... I want to Describe something that I don't want to be. I, I want to take a look at this Zophar fellow, and I want to try and help us spot um, the Zophars that we know, some of them who go to the same church we do. And, um, and, and then I want to help us, if I happen to be one of these Zophar, Zophar types, I want to be able to help you see it and change it. So... This morning we take a look at Zophar. That is the thing I want to describe what I don't want to be. Zophar is the quintessential uh, the quintessential hypocrite, folks. Um, I told the Wednesday night group a couple of weeks ago that the word hypocrite comes from a Greek word. Did you know that? It comes from the word hypokritos. Um, and that hypokritos word comes from the, wor- the world of ancient Greek drama. And if you have ever been to the theater, you have seen this. Let me explain. Um, in, in ancient Greek drama, the way things worked was that the actors would take an oversized mask and they would cover their face with it, holding a little stick and an oversized mask. And the mask would have this broad grin on it, you know? And so the actor would quote uh, all of his uh, comedy lines and the audience, audience would roar in laughter. And then he'd either go backstage or he had it behind his back. He'd change masks. And he'd put another mask in front of him that had this, this drooping uh, frown on it. And then he'd quote his tragic lines. And the audience would groan and moan and cry. And that person was called a hypocritas. He was the one who wore the mask. He was the one who changed masks, depending on the circumstances in which he found himself. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the, is the description of a hypocrite. There, there are some characteristics of the hypocrite that you see in Zophar. And, and I, and I want to I wanna draw your attention to four of them. Four characteristics of Zophar, but four characteristics of, of a hypocrite. Here's number one. 
Zophars are guilty of offering simplistic solutions for complex problems, which is the essence of hypocrisy, ladies and gentlemen, because hypocrites know, they know it all. They have all the answers. They've got it all worked out. And so they, they apply these easy answers in a complex world. Um, it's a, it's a formulaic kind of spirituality. You know, you kind of, you get out of it what you put into it. You know, um, uh, it's a, it's a cause and effect kind of relationship. If I'm suffering, then, then somebody has done something wrong. It's that simple. Now guys, listen, listen to me. Gang, you and I, having read chapters one and two, we know more about what's going on than Job does. Or his three friends. But you see, when you're a, <clears throat> when you're um when you think you've got all the answers, you, you tend to apply simplistic solutions to complex matters. You think like a simpleton. And Job's three friends couldn't have been wronger. That's a, not a good word, but they couldn't have been more wrong. Folks, if this book of Job teaches us anything, it ought to teach us that, that we must not try to be clearer about God than God is about himself. This is this is a place where evangelicals, especially Zophar types, this is where they go wrong, or at least one of the places, seeking they, they try to pin things down that are that are unpinnable, downable. They they try to systematize truths that can't be systematized. They oversimplify highly complex situations. Ladies and gentlemen, may I be the first to inform you that we're not as smart as we think we are. But tell that to Zophar. Tell that to Zophar and his ilk, who've got all the answers. Just like every legalist I've ever met. They've got all the answers. And so they apply all of their simplistic solutions to problems that are highly complex. That's the first characteristic of Zophar. Secondly, there's there's kind of a bull in a china shop approach to the consciences of other people. Because they know everything, they ride in on their white steeds and they, they, uh, they, they correct people. And think it's their duty to do so. And so they, they have this bull in a china shop um, approach to, to people's pain. Have you ever met anybody like that, ladies and gentlemen? In, maybe in our lobby? Or, or how, often, how often have we been like that? We get all of our little theological ducks in a row. And we forget to be tender. Guys, Paul makes a statement. The Apostle Paul makes a statement in the book of Galatians. He talks about faith expressing itself through love. Folks, if we have missed that, faith expressing itself through love, then 
then we're really off track. Here's a third characteristic of the Zophars of the world. There's a tendency to see our acts in the worst of all possible lights and their acts in the best of all possible lights. If you're a Zophar, you tend to look at everybody else's sin in the worst of all possible lights, but you view your own in the best of all possible lights. You know, Jesus gives us a um, um, a parable about about that. Uh, he gives it to us in um, Matthew chapter seven, and it's a story about a about an optometrist. Here's the scene: you go to the optometrist, and you're sitting in the chair, and the optometrist is across the the room from you with his back turned towards you, and he's telling you about how serious is your condition because of the speck that's in your eye. And then he turns around and he's got this big old log that is sticking out of his eye. You see, Zophar in chapter 11 has the nerve, in verse 6, he has the nerve to suggest that Job has gotten off easy. That Job has received far less than his sin deserves. Because he views Job's sin in the worst of all possible lights. And, and, and even worse, this, this, this theological suggestion, this, this assessment that, that God has given you less than that your guilt deserves. Ladies and gentlemen, that's a theological blunder. You do know that, don't you? Does God ever forgive only some of our sin? Is partial forgiveness even possible? So far, apparently thinks so. You know, guys, we sing a song around here. We sing it uh, every every time we do the Lord's Supper. We sing only one stanza. It's from it's from "Peace Like a River," and the stanza goes like this: "My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought! My sin, not the part." But the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Guys, um, all of this, this faulty theological suggestion arises because Zophar looks at my sin and magnifies it. And he looks at his own and he minimizes it. My brother and sister in Christ... If you want to magnify somebody's sin, magnify your own. Love requires that. A fourth characteristic, guys. The Zophars of the world tend to offer the superficial for the real. They, they, uh, they substitute the external for the internal. And you see that in verses 14 through 16. He, he tells him in verse 14, I, I think, uh, to, if you've got some sin, just put it away from you. Guys, uh, Zophar's message is essentially the same as the other two guys, his other two buddies. And they're, they're, they're all three telling Job, Job, your problem is sin. Now you just need to stop it. 
Um, all three of these guys employ a simple theological formula. Suffering is the result of, of sin, and if you'll stop the sinning, you'll stop the suffering. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is to offer the external for the internal. And that is something I don't want to be. There is a there's a little excerpt from the book um, the book I told you about Joe Bailey's book Joe Bailey's book entitled uh, View from the Hearse um, and and in the book um, you, you know Joe Bailey lost three children at three separate times he lost a child I think at twelve days he lost a child. Um, who was five, a son, a five-year-old son to, uh, to leukemia. And then he lost a teenage son in a skiing accident. And he's, and he's telling a story about when he was sitting right after his son died, his five-year-old son died of leukemia. And he said one of his friends came to him and sat with him and talked incessantly and he said, he told me truths that I, 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 know were, I knew were true. He, he said, he, I was completely unmoved. The only thing that I wanted is for him to go away. He said, another friend came. He sat with him and he didn't say much. He said, he responded when I, when I spoke. He, um, he prayed briefly. And I was moved. And then he left, and I was sorry he was gone. You know, ladies and gentlemen, there's one of those two fellows that I want to be, and the other one I don't. It's the Zophar types that think they've got all the answers, that substitute the external for the internal, who, who have nothing but a bull in a china shop approach to everybody else's conscience. I don't want to be that. And I don't want you to be that. But you know people like that. And some of them go to the same church you do. Now, that, that brings me to... I, I want to explain something that I want to do. I don't want to be that, but there's something I do want to do that kind of arises from this text. Again, you got to think with me. So... If you've been napping, it's time to wake up. You're going to have to think with me. Guys, the three friends that Job has, all three of them, as I said, have a similar approach to everything. They're, they're, they're saying if you're suffering, it's a result of sin. You need to stop it and this will change. They, in essence, are calling Job to repent of his sin. Put it far away, they say. And, and in some sense, they're right. They call Job to repent. And ultimately, he does. But not the kind of repentance that his three friends have in mind. 
throughout this whole book, guys, Job is being asked by his three friends, friends to repent of his sin. And Job refuses through 35 odd chapters or so, Job refuses to repent throughout the majority of the book. Why? Why is it that all of these calls upon Job to repent, he refuses to respond? And that's what I want to explain, guys. Folks, it's imperative for all of us to, to, to understand that when Job does repent, or when we repent, he does so not solely because of the pressure of his adverse circumstances. Did you hear me? There is the temptation for us when we are in times of sorrow to try and throw something at God so that we can get this pain over with. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is to offer the external for the internal. Gang, Job ultimately does repent. But he repents when he is convicted of his sin and only then. And that doesn't come until chapter 42. What happens in chapter 42? He faces God. And when, as a result of that, he does sense his sin and he does repent. Adverse circumstances may make us more teachable about our sin. Yes. But guys, I repent of my sin not so that I can feel better, but because because God has shown me something of my own wickedness. Job knows that genuine repentance cannot be motivated from fear or doubt or grief. It can't be extorted from some kind of anxious soul. And guys, I hope you've heard all that because I want to illustrate it until I quit. That is, this morning. I want to give you several illustrations of what I'm trying to communicate. And the first illustration that I have for you is, is, is purely blunt. It's just blunt. Sorry. I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen, that genuine repentance cannot be extorted from an anxious soul. Have you ever been to a funeral? where there's been a tragic death and the preacher gets up and turns it into a revival. He's got people raising their hands and, and, and all that business. Ladies and gentlemen, that is just not kind. To take advantage of you 
in the midst of your grief. So often, I think, you don't have to agree. So often, I think, that what you see in settings like that produces nothing but the superficial in the place of the real. It it is no more than a tranquilizer for a troubled heart, which is all Zophar had to offer Job, a synthetic. Now, guys, I'm not trying to say it's bad to trouble an anxious heart. Just don't call it repentance. Another example. A couple comes in to see me. And let's just say uh, she's had an affair. And they, they want to know, I mean, they're both a mess, but they both want to know, can we put this back together? And I always say, absolutely, yes. And then I add, this can be put back together. If Holy Ghost repentance has been authored, but it'll never be put back together. If all you've got is, oops, I got caught. I even go on to say something like this. If you repent only because you want to save this marriage, or even for the kid's sake, You will be healing the wound of this marriage only slightly. And it's only a matter of time. Because you are substituting the external for the internal. Guys, if the real thing is there, it's always going to be accompanied by a revelation of God's overwhelming mercy and grace in the light of my sin. The real thing, the real repentance is Godward. It is not husbandward. There is a man, a name that most, many of you know, is he's a 14th century French mystic. His name is Fenelon. Some of you have read his book. And Fenelon says this. <clears throat> we hear this voice which carries a tender reproach to the bottom of our... i got to slow down. We hear this voice, which carries a tender reproach to the bottom of our hearts. And our hearts are torn by it. This, he says is true and pure contrition. Gang, Job at this point in chapter 11 is being asked to repent not of his sin but so that he can feel better. He's asking, he's being asked to produce the superficial, and, and, and put that in the place of the real. And he won't do that. 
The first time he will do that. You will find it in chapter 42. When he's dealing with God. You know, guys, one of the things that that I say a lot, and and nobody takes me seriously, but um, here's what I mean by it at least. Stop your apologizing. Have you ever been in a spat with your wife? And, and or your husband and, and somebody apologizes just, just so that we can get through this and go to bed. Christians don't apologize. Christians repent. If there's sin that has separated us, then for heaven's sake, let's deal with the sin. In this this book, the three friends just flood him with this this insistence that Job repent, and he refuses them. But when God speaks in chapter 42, Job becomes aware of his sin, and then, then he repents. Chapter 42, verse 6. And the real thing is so beautiful. It's, it's, it's like a, a kind of chastity of the soul. But the other stuff, the fear-induced, the, the pain-induced, it's very often not the real. It's extorted. It's extorted from a soul that's in grief. You know, guys, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, talked a lot about cheap grace where there's there's also cheap repentance they both come with tears but the difference is one is horizontal the other is vertical Zophars they, they only know of a kind of civil disobedience that they call sin but sin first and foremost is against God and repentance is offered to him not horizontally I I, I guess the best example of this guys, the best example of all is a biblical one, it's in the story of David and Bathsheba you remember that story David and Bathsheba, David had an affair with Bathsheba and and she is impregnated and and, um, he um, uh, tries to correct his, tries to hide his sin by getting her husband drunk, and finally he has to have him murdered. He, he has him killed on the field of battle. Uriah the Hittite, her husband. And then Nathan the prophet finally comes to David and says, David, you're the man. And David is gripped with his sin, and he expresses it in a psalm, Psalm 51. That's his penitential psalm, Psalm 51. And in that psalm, verse 4, David has the nerve to say something like this to God. He says, against thee and thee only have I sinned. What are you talking about, Job? We won't even talk about David. What about Uriah the Hittite? He's dead because of you. What are you talking about, David? What about Bathsheba that no longer has her husband anymore because you murdered him? 
David knows, ladies and gentlemen, before he can ever go and have an affair with Bathsheba, he must trample under his foot the law of God that says thou shalt not commit adultery. And before he can ever go murder her husband, he must spurn the law of God that says thou shalt do no murder. And so he says, what I've done is awful. But the chief part of its awfulness is that I have sinned before you. i got one other illustration. It's probably the simplest and the best, I guess. Have you ever watched a parent deal with their toddler? Or have you ever dealt with your toddler this way? You watch your toddler do something mischievous. You know, they take a toy from another playmate and and you know that that's really being selfish, a part of your toddler. And, and, and you go over to your toddler and you bend down and you say, Say you're sorry. Say you're sorry. And you extract that from your toddler. And my dear friend, are you so benighted? as to think that that really has changed something in your thought. That's what Zophar wanted from David, or from Job. Say you're sorry, Job. Say you're sorry. And this will all go away. And Job wouldn't give it. Because he knew it wasn't real. Guys, in repentance, which is the thing that I want to do, and all of us to do, in repentance, I'm not trying to appease God with some kind of sorrow show. In fact, only Christ can appease God anyway. I'm not trying to put on some show. I'm repenting because I see my sin in the light of God's character. My repentance has to do with my sin before God. And I know beyond all doubt that I have no real remedy for my sin. But I also know I know that God does have a remedy for my sin. And his remedy is is to be found in Christ. He deals with my sin in Christ. Better said, he has dealt with my sin in Christ. It's only in Christ where a remedy for my sin can be found. Ladies and gentlemen, sin will be paid for in total 
either by you or by Christ. You're going to have to decide which that's going to be. Heavenly Father, I I thank you for um, the reminders of the beauty of repentance that this uh, man who is such a complex biblical character is uh, giving us models for what is really wanted by you. Not the superficial, not the external, but the real and the internal something authored by God the Holy Spirit. Would you, would you author it today, Lord? Would you author it perhaps in some for the first time? And would you author it in me afresh? I don't want to be what Zophar was. But I do want to do what Job did. Bring us to that place, O oh God by the power and might of the Holy Spirit. And we ask in Jesus' name.